It's been without question the most bizarre year in recent memory. From virus and mass to polarizing elections, protests, and riots, we have seen a, both a deep weariness and division for the way things are. In the midst of it all, the church in America faces the reality that we are no longer the home team who most people at least respect. We have become hated in the eyes of many, and even more question whether the church brings any value to their lives at all. And as we prepare to fully reopen in June with our mask mandate being lifted by the governor and to relaunch our ministries in the fall, we have to ask, where do we turn to for guidance? Because the reality is that things are not going to be the way that they were in our culture. Those days are gone. So much has changed as a result of 2020, and things will never go back to the way that they were. So we could look to futurists whose specialty is to try to figure out where the world is headed, except no futurist alive has ever lived through a pandemic before. We could look to pundits, but their view of the future seems to be to shock everyone into fear. And the last thing we need as God's people is for fear to drive us. I want to recommend that if we want to know how to respond to the challenges of the future, not even knowing what the future is, we need to do something strange. We need to look back. We need to go look all the way back, not just to the founding of East Point or to the Great Reformation, but we need to look all the way back to the book of Acts, to the birth of the church which we celebrate today on Pentecost. And as we do, we will find a group of people who had no idea what they were about to face in a culture that was completely hostile to them, and yet they thrived because they trusted in God. I've been reading a book by a British historian by the name of Tom Holland called Dominion. It's a fascinating book because Holland is an expert in Greek and Roman cultures that surrounded the time of Jesus. And he writes about the cultural impact that Christianity has had for nearly 2,000 years on Western culture. He explains how without Christianity, we would not have equal rights. Slavery never would have been abolished. Women would not have had the rights they have today. Uh, families never would have had the structure they have today. And even looks to more recent movements like the Beatles telling us that all we need is love and the Me Too Christians as things that never would have happened, um, developed without the impact of Christianity. And it's a dense read for sure, but Holland, as someone who grew up as a Christian and yet is not currently practicing it, notes the irony of it all. You see, for all of history, all of recorded history up to the time of Jesus, and on beyond the times of Jesus, history was merely determined by power. Whether it was King Cyrus or Alexander the Great or one of the many Caesars, it was all about defeating people in war and subduing them under your power. But Holland points out the brilliance that none of those cultures actually survived with a lot of influence. When they were done, they were done. Oh sure, there were technological advances that were built upon, but by and large, these powers died themselves, but yet the impact of Christianity, and of Christ specifically, continues. And here's the irony that one person in one movement who had such a lasting impact was not one of power, but was one that celebrates, in the words of Holland, all are heirs to the same revolution. A revolution that has at its molten heart the image of a God dead on a cross. While we are often quick to throw in there that he didn't stay on the cross, 
The reality is, is that Jesus also wasn't resurrected in a way where he came back as a warrior to defeat all of his enemies who slayed him. But rather, he called his followers not to take up their swords, but to take up their crosses and to follow him and to live their lives peacefully and yet boldly. Holland says, to be a Christian is to believe that God became man and suffered a death as, a, as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. This is why the cross, an ancient implement of torture, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It is the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization which it gave birth. Today, the power of this strangeness remains as alive as it has ever been. It is manifest in, great, in the great surge of conversions that has swept over Africa and Asia over the past century, and the conviction of millions upon millions that the breath of the Spirit, like a living fire, still blows on this world. And in Europe and North America, and the assumptions that many more millions who never would think to describe themselves as Christians... And so today we look forward to what God has for us in the future, but we do so by looking back. You could say we're looking back to the future, to the book of Acts. So let's turn on our flux capacitors and set our clocks to 80-30 and accelerate to 88 miles an hour and see over the next couple of months what in the world was going on back then. And the first thing we see from the book of Acts is that it is a sequel but it is a sequel unlike any other. It starts off in Acts 1.1, if you have your Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, and then Acts, the story of the early church. And here's how Luke starts off writing. Luke, obviously, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, is now writing this sequel, which is all about the church. He says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, which I doubt any of you are going to name your children anytime soon, all about that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he presented himself alive to them in many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And here's where it gets really interesting for us. The sequel that we see does not seem to star the lead character. Imagine Star Wars, the first ones, not the more recent ones, where Luke Skywalker only shows up for five minutes in the second movie. Or the Matrix trilogy where Neo is absent after the first episode. Or if Steven Spielberg would have written Indiana Jones out of the storyline of the movie Indiana Jones, I think we will all agree that he would have chosen poorly. Jesus isn't writing himself out of the story, though, but rather he is writing himself into the heart's of his believers, his followers. And he is going to multiply himself through his disciples and empower them by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus is in us today. And so in verse 4 it says, While Jesus was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. The first command that Jesus gives to the early church is to wait we would be wise to listen. Which he said, you have heard me speak about, the Father's promise. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in a few days with the Holy Spirit. 
And while he was speaking to them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Oh, wait, I just read that. Sorry. Uh, Here we go. Um, But you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel or to Israel at this time? Did you notice? They still, all they knew was power, wasn't it? They heard power on high and they thought military dominance. They thought we're going to send things back to the way they were when King David was here, when Israel was the big shots, when Israel was the one who was in power. But Jesus' desire was not just to uphold a nation, but his desire was to fulfill Israel's greatest calling, which we see all the way back in Genesis 12, was that they were to be a blessing to all nations, that God was going to bless all nations through them. And so these early Jewish people who become followers of Jesus were actually tasked with that great responsibility to be a blessing to all nations. And so when Jesus is hit with this question, I'd like to think he probably rolled his eyes and smacked his forehead and said, they still don't get it. But here's what he says. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the periods the Father has set by his own authority. But, and here's where the power comes in, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. But notice the type of power that this is. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here are all nations in that. And so here we see that this power that is entrusted to them The power of the Holy Spirit, one of its primary produces, if you will, is the power of witness. The early church was empowered to be witnesses, and you and I as well are empowered to be witnesses. And that means that sometimes in the the book of Acts, we see that sometimes they received the gift of healing. Sometimes that didn't happen but they were always called to be witnesses. Sometimes they saw God move in amazing ways. Sometimes they suffered great hardships. Sometimes they were spared from great hardships. But through it all, they knew that their primary calling was to be a witness. And I don't know what hardships that you may be going through or what you're going to have in the next year, but what I can tell you is this, is that first and foremost, God will always empower you to be a witness through whatever trial you face. And while we should beg for His deliverance, while we should pray for healing, the reality is is that we should more than anything else pray, God, let me be a faithful witness. Because being a faithful witness is more important than our very health. It is more important than our very well-being because we trust that when Christ returns, we will have eternal life. We will receive a resurrected body that will never succumb to sickness, mourning, or death, or any other of those pains ever again. And because we can be bold witnesses, we want to share that hope with everyone. And so in verse 9, it says, after Jesus had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud 
took him out of their sight. Now, it wasn't like Jesus got on a spaceship and went to, to, to planet heaven, okay? Heaven and earth in the Bible are overlocking realities. In the Old Testament, it was like the temple was the touchy point of heaven. Now for us as the temple of God, as Paul talks about it, that we are multiple touch points of heaven living out the reality on earth. Someday when Jesus returns, the plan is not to like blow up earth and nuke it. The plan is that heaven and earth would be one. That's what we see at the end of the book of Revelation is that heaven and earth are transformed, are renewed and become one together. And our desire is to be witnesses of heaven so that we can bring as much heaven to this earth as we possibly can before Jesus brings it all. And so here we see that he was taken up into heaven and while he was going, they were gazing into heaven because what would you do? Like, oh, well, I've never seen this before. I'm going to stand around and watch. And suddenly, two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who had been taken from you, and to, from you to heaven will come again in the same way that you see him going to heaven. And so we see this whole picture of power, the power of witness. And it reminds me of a lesson from another trilogy, this one from Spider-Man. But really, it's derived from Luke's gospel. And that is, with great power comes great responsibility. You've heard that before, right? And with the great power that has been entrusted to the church, both then and now, comes a great responsibility. But I want to show you where that responsibility starts for the church and where it should start for us as well. In verse 12 it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they went to the, up, uh, the room upstairs where they were staying, and it gives the whole list of disciples, which I won't list for you, so you don't need to hear me butcher their names. And in verse 14, it says, they all were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. All throughout Luke's gospel, you're going to, or Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, you're going to see uh, the value of women, which would have been revolutionary in their day, something that Jesus did, uh, his value of women. But here we see they were continually united in prayer. So with great power comes a great responsibility. And as followers of Christ, we see that with great power comes the responsibility to pray. In the book of Acts, prayer is mentioned 30-some times. And in Luke's Gospel, it's around 27 times. It's mentioned in these two books, those 57 times, almost as much as it is in the rest of the New Testament combined. To Luke, prayer wasn't just a side note, but a major emphasis. The early church could not have gotten by without it, and therefore we would be foolish to try to get by without being devoted to prayer as well. And so what can we learn from the, with prayer from the first Christians? What can we learn about this prayer? First is that they prayed continually. Prayer was never far from their lips and was always in their hearts. They gathered for prayers that were often spoken or recited Old Testament things, but it's clear that throughout the rest of the book of Acts as well that they were always people of prayer. They were always praying they recognized that connection with the Holy Spirit was something that they wanted to do continually. But I want to point out that they didn't start off this way. 
Remember, if we look back to Luke's gospel, if we look back to the prequel to the book of Acts, if you will, what we see is that the early apostles, the disciples, they struggled to pray. And Luke 11, we see that they actually asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, which I imagine would have been a great school. But then we see in the Garden of Gethsemane that while Jesus is praying and sweating drops of blood as he prays, that the disciples are sound asleep. But what we see, something has shifted in the book of Acts to where now they are praying like Jesus prayed. There has been a shift. How much of this is tied in with the Holy Spirit? How much of it is tied in with the resurrection? I don't know. But I want you to hear me because a lot of you and I as well struggle with guilt when it comes to prayer. We feel guilty because we don't pray enough and that keeps us from praying more. And the reality is, is that prayer is something that is learned. Prayer is something that grows. Prayer is not something that just happens overnight. Your prayer life can be developed at any point in your life. You're never too old to start learning how to pray. You're never too young. It's probably not going to happen overnight, but I'm telling you, you can grow in your prayer life. You can grow in learning and teaching yourself. And it's not done out of guilt or shame. It is done out of a desire to want to walk with God and believing that you are His child and He is always welcoming you, you to walk with Him. We can pray continually as they prayed. Secondly, we see that prayer unified them. It says that they were continually united in prayer. And the same thing should be true of us. Of course, we have to recognize the opposite as well. That if there is a season in our life where we are not united with other believers and are not building towards unity, we have to ask ourselves, are we praying the way we should be? Because as believers, we should be coming together, not being split apart. And the reality is, is that the history of the church is filled with ugly messes, ugly splits, ugly, painful deals, and so often it is because we let Satan in because we failed to pray. Don't get me wrong, whether we are praying or not, we will face spiritual warfare. We will face attacks. In fact, the more, if you want to just fire up Satan a little bit, just start praying. You see what happens in your life. You'll be saying, well, I just started praying. Like, how come all this stuff started happening to me that's bad, not good? It's because Satan doesn't like it. Hang in there. Persevere through that prayer. And I tell you what, now you're really going to need prayer because you've got Satan coming after you. But God will show you his faithfulness. God will show you his provision. So we can learn from the early Christians, from the first Christians, that prayer unified them. It united them. And it should be uniting us it should be uniting our families. It should be uniting our marriages. We need to be a praying people. We need to pray to stay on the same page. We need to pray to get on the same page. We need to pray forgiveness so that we don't push each other off of that page. All right? We need to be a praying people, and prayer unifies us. Let prayer unify your marriage. Let it marify your friendships. Let it unify your families. Let it unify our church. And finally, what can we learn from the prayer of the first Christians? Finally, that prayer was always met with a response from God. Never once in the book of Acts do we see that they prayed and God did not show up in some way. 
Now, it doesn't mean he always did what he, they wanted him to do. It doesn't mean that everything was good. In fact, we see through the book of Acts, a lot of them die for the sake of the gospel. But that the gospel was furthered through it. And so as I close off today, what I want to do is I want to look at three direct things that we see in the back book of Acts. Three responses to prayer that we see. When they prayed, here is what happened. First, when they prayed, they were led by the Holy Spirit. They were led by the Holy Spirit when they prayed. In Acts 10, all the way down, we assume it's several years after the day of Pentecost, the church was still exclusively Jewish. It was people who were following Jesus. The, the, the promise of Abraham had not been seen yet. And while there were people from all over who were Jewish who believed, and while there were Samaritans who had started to believe, like half Jewish people, at the end of the day, they still had Jewish roots. But there was this man named Cornelius. He was a centurion. He was a guy who oversaw a hundred Roman soldiers. This is probably a pretty tough dude, right? But he was a Jewish follower. Uh, he, was a, he was a Gentile follower of Judaism. He was a Gentile convert. And while he was praying one day, the Holy Spirit showed up and said, you need to look for this guy named Peter. Well, you know what Peter was doing? Peter was praying too. And, and, and God shows up in a dream to Peter, and, and Peter's dream's a little bit like a lot of my dreams. He started seeing buffets of bacon and, and baby back ribs and all kinds of stuff that just was not, yeah, can I get an amen with that, right? I mean, this was, this was good. But Peter, it was like lusting for him because he had never had any pork before in his life. He'd always upheld the law, and he said, never, Lord, this is awful. And he heard this voice saying, eat, and he's like, I can't do that. And then he hears this voice from Jesus that says, Peter... Don't you dare call unclean what I have made clean. And Peter realized it wasn't just the bacon, thank God, that he made clean, but it was the Gentiles who had been made clean through the blood of Jesus. And he went immediately to Cornelius' house, and because Cornelius was praying and Peter were praying, they were kind of expecting each other, and I'm sure it was an awkward conversation. So you, you have a dream too? You had a dream too? Well, what happened? And Peter's like, what's this stuff called bacon? I gotta try some. And what happens is that while Peter is explaining the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius in a powerful way. And Peter's like, oh my gosh, Gentiles can be saved too. And, and everybody's like, wow, this is amazing. And Jesus is probably like, watch. He's like, duh, come on, people. But it happened. And from then on, if you are a Gentile person as I am, we are responsible, we are thankful that the gospel spread to Cornelius and now it's spread to the whole world. But it started when two people prayed. It started when they prayed. If you want to be led by the Holy Spirit, be a person of prayer. You won't always like where the Holy Spirit sends you. It won't always be dreams of bacon. But I'm telling you, you will see God lead you. Second, what did those responses look like? We see that they were strengthened through prayer. In Acts 4, they were facing persecution from the same, at that time from their own people, from Jewish people, people who they would have worshipped next to in the temple. And, and, and as a result, after, after Peter and I think James were arrested, like, like they get together and they all get together and they're praying in this room. But do you know what they did not pray? They did, they did not pray for safety. They did not pray for their lives to be strengthened. They did not pray for their lives to be extended. What they did pray is that they could be bold witnesses. I mean, what if our prayers were the same? 
Again, like we should pray for the sick. We should pray for those who are going through tough times. No questions. But what if the first part of our prayer was always, Lord, let us be bold witnesses. Even if you don't strengthen my health, even if you don't strengthen my relationship with my neighbors, would you strengthen my courage? Would you strengthen me and help me to be bold? And do you know what happened as a result? The whole room they were meeting in was shaken. Unlike James Bond, the disciples were both shaken and stirred. The room they were in was shaken by the power of God and they were stirred to be bolder witnesses. What a powerful reminder. The whole earth shakes when they prayed. Just once I want that to happen when we're praying. Not like a 9.4 on a Richter scale, because I don't think our Ohio buildings are built for that. But, you know, like a 4.2 or something like that. Enough to leave like a crack in the drywall. A crack that we would never fix because we would remember what happened when we prayed. And rather, when the earth shook, being scared, we would be emboldened and witnessed. They were strengthened through prayer. And the last response is that miracles happened through prayer. It wasn't always the miracles they were looking for. We see in Acts 12 that James, the brother of John, was actually martyred. He was killed for his faith. And they were praying because Peter was thrown in prison. And here they are thinking, wow, you know, there's Peter, James, and John are like the big three, and like one of the three's gone already, you know, and Peter's in prison, and, uh, you know, they're like, man, this is serious. This, 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 what are we going to do about this? And so they were praying, and as they're praying, like Peter's sitting in prison, and like the, the handcuffs or whatever, the chains just fell off of him. And the door opens, and he's like, I, I think he thought he was dreaming at first. Like, well, I'm going to walk out. And he walks out to the like, knocks on the door where they're praying at. And, and they're like, don't bother us. We're praying in here, you know. And like, like, you know, they're like, they're like, wait, it sounds like Peter. And they're like, no, what's going on here? Like, they didn't even believe it hardly that this, their prayer was answered this quickly. But it was. And then in another situation, in, in Acts 16, we see that this time it's, it's Paul, remember the former murderer of Christians who had the Damascus Road vision? We'll talk about that here in a few weeks. And he's, out, he's put in jail with his buddy Silas, and, and they're having like a hymn sing there in prison. I don't know what songs they were singing, but it's reverberating off the walls. People are probably starting to ask questions. Why in the world are these guys singing? They've just been arrested. Why are they so joyous? And, 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 and people were, as they're praying, like the chains fell off them too, and the door opens up, but like they know in the Holy Spirit that they're not supposed to leave. I can't explain it, but they go over and the jailer, the jailer who would have had his life held accountable to the prison being freed here is about to take his own life because he doesn't want to be held responsible for this. And Peter and si or excuse me, Paul and Silas stop him and say, wait, we're all still here. And not only was the jailer's life saved, but he and his whole family were saved in the Christian sense because they followed Jesus because of the sacrifice of the apostles, because miracles happened when they prayed. And miracles happen when we pray too. My prayer for this morning is that you would hear from the Holy Spirit in a way that you need to deepen your prayer life. And so as we close off today, I'm going to ask you, as I pray that you just simply hold your hands open in, in your lap, hold them outward open, 
and that we would pray that the Holy Spirit, whether he's already spoken to you or he's going to speak to you on the way home or he speaks to you now, would lay on your heart a way that you can deepen your prayer life. Father, we come before you as a people um, who need you, a people who need to be a praying people. We recognize that you have given us the most powerful uh, power of all in the Holy Spirit, the power to be your witnesses even when we are facing opposition and hardships. And so, Lord, as we long to be a people of prayer at East Point, we pray now that you would speak to us Help us to hear how we can grow in our prayer life, whether it be that we need uh, to fast a day of the week, Lord, whether it be that we need to pray regularly with our spouse, whether it be that we need to get a group of friends together and just pray for our neighborhoods, to walk through our neighborhoods and pray, or something else, Lord. We just, just pray for your Holy Spirit to speak now. Lord, speak to us this week. Speak to us and help us to know that we are constantly invited to prayer, that we are never a hassle to you, that you long for us to come as your children and to pray to you. Lord, we pray knowing that you hear our prayers. Grow us as a praying church, Lord. Grow us in the power of the Holy Spirit. May people know it's not us, but it's you working through us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.